Okay, now for our first message this morning, the first split sermon will be brought to us by the Man of Steel. Mr. Matt Spill will be speaking on Who is Jesus, Part 3. Good afternoon. Well, I heard one person was here. <laughs> so I have a trick question for you. How many parts is there to this who is Jesus question? There probably isn't a limit, really, is there? So many different facets of Jesus that we could talk about, and uh, I think it would take us on into the kingdom and beyond talking about Jesus. But you know, we live in a fantastic age. We have gadgets, technology, medical technology, specifically, I want to mention today. I was reading an article uh, on the BBC News website earlier this week. It's an article dated on July 7th, 2014, by David Robson. And uh, the title is called, The Ultimate Comeback. No, it's not talking about Brazil coming back from a 7-1 deficit in the World Cup, in case anybody, uh, there's one Englishman here that understands that. <laughs> the ultimate comeback, bringing the dead back to life. Hmm. He says, a radical procedure that involves replacing a patient's blood with cold salt water could retrieve people from the brink of death. When you are at 10 degrees centigrade, with no brain activity, no heartbeat, no blood, everyone would agree that you are dead, says Peter Ree at the University of Arizona, Tucson. But we can still bring you back. Wow. And Ree is not exaggerating. With Samuel Tisherman at the University of Maryland College Park, he has shown that it is possible to keep bodies in suspended animation for hours at a time. So just think about this. A body can be kept in this suspended animation with no blood in it, with just saline, cold salt water in this body. The procedure so far tested on animals is as bad as radical as any medical procedure com that comes. It involves draining the body of its blood and cooling it to more than 20 degrees C, below the normal body temperature. Once the injury is fixed, the wound, the cut, the sh gunshot, the knife wound, whatever it may be, blood is pumped once again through the veins, and the body is slowly warmed back up. He says, as the blood is pumped in, the body turns pink right away. At a certain temperature, the heart flickers into life of its own accord. It's quite curious. I'd say it's freaky. But he says it's curious. The heart, the heart will beat once at about 30 degrees C, as if out of nowhere. And then again. And then, as it gets even warmer, it picks up all by itself. 
Astonishingly, the animals in their experiments show very few ill effects once they've been woken up. In case you're wondering, Brian, they do run around. They're not just walking zombies. So. <laughs> and they've been doing some tests. And they test these animals after they've been woken up. And they can do the same things that they did before. And then they can also teach them new things and show that they can learn again. Tisherman crea created headlines around the world earlier this year when he announced that they were ready to begin human trials of the technique on gunshot victims in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The first patients will have been so badly wounded that their hearts have stopped beating, meaning that this is their last hope. So I guess if you have nothing to lose, then this extreme medical procedure, it's not going to make any worse, is it? It's already as bad as it can get. Cheating death with suspended animation is how CNN put it. Killing a patient to save his life was the New York Times take. And the article goes on to describe in a little bit more detail the, the testing that they did and how they were able to determine that they could do this, that they could slow the body's cellular systems down so that they don't degrade. So that seemingly whatever oxygen that they need is sufficient to continue life without a heartbeat. And yet, in spite of this really incredible technology, all we can do is extend what we already have. All we can do is extend that window where surgeons can go in and repair the damage. But within a time frame, maybe a few hours, the blood has to be returned. And it's interesting, isn't it? That ultimately for that patient to come back to life, it has to have the blood back in it. Just like the scripture tells us, that life is in the blood. So in spite of all this, we are really still just as frail as when we started out. Our medical technology may be able to do miraculous things or seem miraculous. But in fact, it's just a small extension. We are still frail human beings. But there is one who can reverse even human nature, that can change this body of sin and death, that can raise from the dead long after this time of, has passed of two or three hours being cold being without blood, he can raise us to life. When our bones have turned to dust, when our bodies are just decayed, and of course, I'm talking about the one called Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is our life. There are many sources of evidence in the Bible that we can point to about Jesus being our life. But I want to look at his own words. And I want to look at the words that he quoted as evidence of who he was and why he is our life. In John chapter 6 and verse 46, he says, 
Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who has come from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And then later in John chapter 14, in verse 5, he's, Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And perhaps one of the most direct statements that Jesus ever made on this is in John chapter 10 and verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they, or that you, or that we may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Jesus is the life. He is our life. Is the source of all life. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Jesus is our life. And it's important for us to dwell on that. Because in this world, we have many challenges, don't we, to that view. The world tries to tell us that this is not true. Materialists, evolutionists, those that are of that faith of evolution and follow the religion of evolution will tell us that life is nothing more than just happen chance, some biological processes that produced complex organisms through changes, random mutations over time. That is the tenet of their doctrine, and that life has no creator, and there's no reason for a creator. And yet I find it interesting that in spite of all their complex arguments, in spite of all their smart apostles and priests of that religion, they end up falling into the same category as all the other religions that man has ever produced. Because every single one of the false religions on this earth all deny Jesus Christ. They all deny who is the source of life, regardless of their variations. Many different faiths, many different gods espousing their own version of creation and life. There are even men and women who read the same scriptures that we do, read the same Bible 
or at least parts of it, and deny that Jesus was the creator of life, the author of life. And they specifically deny that he was or is the giver of eternal life. Let me, let me reiterate that. There are men and women that read the Bible just as we do and deny that Jesus is the source of life. Jesus himself faced these same kind of individuals. You know, and it's so interesting that the challenges that Jesus had when he was preaching to the people and the lawyers and the Pharisees and, and those that were against his faith and against what he was trying to teach us, their philosophy, their worldview is very much alive today. Very much alive. The Jews and the religious leaders were incensed at Jesus in John chapter 5. How dare he heal on the Sabbath day? How do you get to that place where you're so obsessed about the Sabbath day that you miss that a man was just healed? I'm not sure. But it caused these leaders to want to kill Jesus, and even more by what we later read in John chapter 5 and verse 17. He says, Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. And therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And then Jesus answered and said unto them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For what the, whatever he does, whatever the Father does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. You know, that's interesting, isn't it? Because right here, right at this moment, dead people were not resurrected. What was he talking about? He was talking about the spiritually dead people that were all around him with their minds closed to what they were seeing in front of them, which was the very living word of God, the Son of God, our life. And they were hearing the words, but it wasn't going anywhere. He's given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, 
those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who has sent me. Do we believe what Jesus is saying here? Do we accept what he is saying? You know, we've talked about it before. There's so many educated individuals, Bible scholars. Well, they agree that Jesus was a good man, was a rabbi, was a teacher. Again, we come back to this principle that we either believe Jesus about who he was or who he is to us. Or he's a crazy madman and a liar. He has to be one or the other. So again, do we believe Jesus? Jesus again returns to the, the legal system, as it were. He brings up witnesses. In verse uh, 31, he says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another, remember, by two or three witnesses, shall the matter be established. There's another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in its light. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do. They bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. So Jesus is citing John as a witness. He's citing his own works as a witness. And he's citing God the Father as a witness of who he was, that he was and is our life. And as I said before, there are those who study the Bible who also deny that Jesus was the source of life everlasting life. And we may wonder, how could they do that? Well, Jesus gives us an example. He gives us a template. He gives us a way in which we can identify these individuals and perhaps why they believe the way they do. Think about it. There are all kinds of religious leaders, aren't there? Of different varieties, just even within the Christian world, and the broader Christian world, and the Judeo-Christian world. There are all kinds of philosophies and worldviews, educated individuals, scholars, with their specific beliefs. And some of them read the same scriptures we do and deny Jesus as the source of life. They're of their father, as Jesus said, the devil. They do his works. 
And they're set about to confuse and corrupt the mind. Even the mind of those that have been called out of darkness into that light, which is the life of man. So how do we recognize them? So that we can stay away from them and their teachings. I think partially by understanding what Jesus says next. This scripture just jumped out at me as, a, as the answer to why individuals can get so wrapped up in the word of God and yet miss the living word of God, miss Jesus, miss the life that is manifested in those pages. And verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have life eternal, or eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So let me say that again. He's talking to these Jews, these Pharisees, or lawyers, whoever is around him. You search the scriptures, he says to them, for in them you think you have eternal life. You think by searching the scriptures you have eternal life. You don't. Jesus said, they're telling you about me. They're not eternal life of themselves. They're telling you about me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So is it possible to read the same scriptures and not believe in Jesus? Absolutely. Jesus just gave us the answer. And the spirit of those men is alive today. Is alive corrupting the minds and the hearts of Christians, of men and women that were called out of darkness. And they are now being drugged back into darkness with a deception of thinking that they're finding eternal life in the scriptures. You search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. These are those that testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. In one sense, though, this shouldn't be surprising. This is not the first time Jesus said this. He said it at another time in another place, all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Back when God asks Israel to choose life or death. In verse 15 he says, See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may have life and multiply. And the Lord God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan, and go to possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses again uh, today against you, 
that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. God is our life. Jesus is our life and length of days. Not the studying of the scriptures. It sounds odd to the ears, but if the scriptures don't lead us to cling onto God, to cling onto Jesus, then life is not in us. That you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. The scriptures are here to help us. David talks about them being lamps to our feet. They illuminate the path. They lead us to truth. They lead us to God. They guide us. They help us to make wise decisions so we don't damage our lives and the lives of those around us. But of themselves, they are not eternal life. God is our life. Jesus is our life. And I don't care what biblical scholars say. I read what's in the word and what Jesus said. And we believe the word. And we believe Jesus, that he is our life. It is Jesus who can restore our sin-filled existence and carry those marks away. It is Jesus who we need to cling to because there are forces in this world that are trying to pry us away from him that want to break that, that bond. And sometimes they are successful, aren't they? And so often in life we just, we go along and we go to church and we study our Bible and we just kind of, we don't think about the threat that's out there and yet it is there, present. And then it manifests in the lives of those we love, in our own lives. There's an enemy prying us away from that's why he tells us, cling on, just hold on. He is our life. Back in John chapter 5, verse 41, Jesus says, I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive, you'll receive him. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my word? Have you ever thought about that scripture? That Moses wrote about Jesus. Now, if you get your Bible software out and you start searching, you will not find a passage of scripture that Moses wrote the words, Jesus. Right. I think we can accept that. For one, it's a different language. But even then, he didn't, he didn't say, 
there's going to be this guy, Joshua, and he's going to come down to the earth and he's going to walk around. And he was not so emphatic as to make that kind of statement. There is beautiful imagery in there. There's imagery about the Lamb of God. There's imagery of the, the manna coming from heaven, which Jesus himself just cited. There's all these clues, which to me makes it more fun. It's a mystery. It's something to work out. And that's how God suckers us in and gets us to follow that mystery. And then he's got us hooked. But there is no definitive, clear, this is it, guys. And this is exactly what's going to happen. And why would there be? Because all kinds of guys would come along and say, hey, that's me. And try and do those very same things. So what does he mean that Moses talked about it? I think it's just right there on the page. If you read the first five books, the Pentateuch, the books that Moses wrote, I believe that when he says, the Lord said this, the Lord said do that, the Eternal said do this, the I Am said do that, it was Jesus. He talked about him all the time. In every page, perhaps, I might get some objections, even when he says, Yahweh said this and that. Remember, Jesus said, no one has seen the Father at any time except him. So, Moses talked about Jesus on the page he is our life. And we cling to him. We hold on to him. Jesus is our life. We do believe Jesus. We believe his words. We believe that he is our life. And in him, and only him, is eternal life. I want to complete my message today by looking at a familiar parable. I think it might just reinforce this message today in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. Very familiar passage. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to in inherit eternal life? And he said, What is written in the law? So Jesus answers him, What's written in the law? What's your reading of it? So the lawyer answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And I just have to chuckle because, like any good lawyer, he doesn't ask a question that he doesn't know or already know the answer to, right? I think that's right in the drive. Because he's right there. He's ready with the answer. But he wanted more. He wanted to be wanted to justify himself. So he said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, crossed the street and went down the other side. 
Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and, and passed by on the other side also. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, <coughs> came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So, which one of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Kind of wonder if maybe this happened to this guy, but you know, we have no way of knowing. But that would be cool, wouldn't it? That he was one of the guys across the street and went around. He probably would have been speechless had it been him. You know, we often look at this passage, probably as I was reading it, you were thinking, would I be like the Samaritan? I hope I would. Or would I be like the, the priest and the Levite? Is anybody watching? I'm just going to skirt on around because this guy looks dangerous. He might be down, but you know, we may have all kinds of reasons why we might not want to help the guy. And typically, that's where I place myself in this, in this parable. Which one am I? I want to be the one that goes to this man's aid. Renee was reading an article, a part of an article to me the other day that gave me a completely new view on this passage. The writer of the article asks us to put ourselves not as the priest, not as the Levite, but as the Samaritan. Not, not as the Samaritan, but as the man who was wounded lying on the side of the road. So, well, what does that mean? So I did it. I looked at that. So I am now, in this story, the one that was beaten and on the side of the road. And it fits. This world did rob us, didn't it? It steals our joy. It humiliates us. It takes away our honor takes away what righteousness we ever had. It leaves us beaten and bloodied on the side of the road. And that's the best of us. There are so many individuals with so many broken lives beaten and left on the side of the road in life. Jesus, in this scenario, is the Samaritan. He was rejected, wasn't he? He wasn't even a real Israelite. There was questions about his father, and let alone qualified to be the son of God, at least according to the Levite and the priest and the Jews. And so just like the Samaritan, he wasn't accepted, was he? And yet he came along and he found us on the side of the road. Beaten, robbed, have mercy on us. 
had compassion on us. He picked us up. He bound up our wounds. He cleansed them with wine, which is his own blood. And then he anointed us with oil, the Holy Spirit. I was blown away that we could learn this from this parable that we know so well and we, we had it all down. And yet, if we look at it a little differently, we can see ourselves, and we can see our Savior, and we can see the life that he brings to us. And then what does he do? He carries us to a safe place. In the story, it's an inn. In our lives, it's the church. And he leaves us with the church. And he says to that church, look after him. Heal him. Treat him. And whatever you spend, I will make good on. When I return, he says, I will repay. Beautiful imagery. And it reminds me of Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, says Jesus, to give everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Going back to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Who is Jesus? He is our life, our everlasting life.